You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with food and travel writer Georgia Friedman about China's Yunnan province. We ask about Julia Child's favorite dish, a steam pot chicken. That was when she was living in Yunnan during World War II. We also discuss Yunnan's most celebrated soup. Yunnan's most famous dish is crossing the bridge rice noodles. And the version of it that you find in Yunnan, in the city of Mengzi, where it's originally from, is just so phenomenally good. It takes hours and hours and days and days to get a broth as flavorful as the broth that they are making. Also coming up, we present a recipe for a new take on pulled pork, and Dan Pashman teaches me about the joys of shower beers. But first, let's hear from Kim Severson of The New York Times about her article, The Freshest Ideas Are in Small Grocery Stores. Kim Severson, welcome to Milk Street Radio. Glad to be here, Chris. So you did a story in The Times about small grocery stores leading the way to sort of an alternative shopping experience. Uh, And we'll get to that. But my favorite quote from that story is this. God said I needed to open a grocery store. (laughs) So so who was that person and what did he open? Amen, brother. Uh, That was uh, Major Gene Hogg, who was the Salvation Army's commander for Central Maryland. And so he has been in the Salvation Army game for a long time, uh, mostly feeding people. He organized mobile kitchens when the towers fell in Manhattan and he went to New Orleans when the levees broke. So he's he's been really in the in the Salvation Army food truck feeding game for a long time. Um, and he's in Baltimore when the riots erupted in 2015. All these businesses, many of them food businesses, were burned or vandalized. And so they started feeding people. And uh, he was moving into what his next thing will be. And he said he prayed and fasted for three days and God told him that he had to open a grocery store. And this guy is not what you would expect uh, a grocer to be, but they opened a grocery store that's run by the Salvation Army called DMG Foods, I think Doing More Good. And it's this, looks like, all intents and purposes, a grocery store. It's got coupons, and they've got a great butcher who grinds the chicken fresh. And uh, it's open in a, right in a, a kind of the nexus of a working-class neighborhood, kind of the edge of where some of the riots began. Uh, and he it's a traditional grocery store that's trying to solve the problem of people either having to walk three miles to the next big grocery store. Uh, also has a lot of discount food. It has coupons, you know, cooking classes. And uh, it, it's, it's a kind of a fascinating thing, this notion of the nonprofit grocery store. You also mentioned that convenience is a big issue. And there's a store that's open 24-7 uh, and it has no employees. How does that work? So, yes, the idea of a 24-hour unstaffed grocery store is catching on in a couple of different ways. We all know Amazon has its walk-in, grab-and-go, and walk out without ever seeing a cashier stores. But in a place called New Prague, uh, Minnesota, the, a couple named Kendra and Paul Rasmussen have opened uh, basically a, you know, a little co-op health food store 
with a lot of organic food that they couldn't find at their big box stores. And it's essentially the honor system. You can go in 24 hours a day. There's a, you know, like a iPad to check your food out with. Vendors who want to come in and stock their food, farmers and that sort of thing, have a similar card key. It's like the 24-hour gym. You go in and you shop and buy your things and check yourself out. Uh, You pay a small amount of money to be a member. Uh, and then you can shop whenever you want. And they realized they couldn't afford to run a grocery store and staff it on regular hours. Uh, so this was a way that they could pro- get the basically get the food they wanted to eat for their family and not have to actually run the business like a traditional grocery store. You know, this reminds me a little of co-ops. You know, I shop in Vermont in Brattleboro at the co-op there, which is fabulous. Um, but it's community-operated. It's volunteers. You have a number if you're a member of the co-op. Uh, it's an alternative way of shopping. I, I guess that would be an early, uh, you know, early version of the alternative grocery store, right? Right. Co-ops certainly have been around for a long time, and there have been all kinds of alternative ways to get your groceries. I think what we're seeing now are these these things popping up in urban areas, and I think we're seeing a lot more alter- little community alternatives to grocery shopping because grocery shopping is getting so much more specialized, too. And the grocery industry has been so slow to evolve. It is one of the last big giants to get disrupted. And so I think we're in a period right now where there's lots of forces pushing on the grocery industry. Uh, and so the big markets are evolving. So it's a different kind of experience. What, what, what is an experience in a grocery store? I, I sometimes shop at Whole Foods. And, and I do find that the process is a happier experience than probably a, a, a more mass market chain. It, w- w- what does that mean? If you're in the grocery store business and you talk about the experience of shopping, w- what are they talking about and how do they think about changing it? Well, you're seeing the, um, the outer, you know, they always talk about the perimeter and then the inside of the grocery store. So the perimeter is the fresh food and uh, dairy uh, so that part of the grocery store is taking up more, much more real estate. So you might uh, be able to go and pick out several vegetables and then say to a person behind a counter, I want to make a certain kind of stir fry. Can you um, cut all these vegetables up for me? And they will customize you know, some of the kitchen work. and You'll have that experience. There are you know, little wine bars in a lot of grocery stores now. And so you can, I don't know why you would want to sit and drink a glass of wine in the grocery store, but people do this. And so uh, there's that kind of thing. There is more sampling. There are health and wellness experts. They're starting to put little spa bath boutiques inside some major grocery store chains. So you can go into this little spa bath boutique and get some customized uh, lotion or some advice on some kind of essential oil that would make you feel better. So you have that experience. And then you can stop at the ramen bar and have a little ramen while you're waiting for you know, your vegetable butcher to finish with the vegetables. And in the meantime, also get some toilet paper and dish soap. So that's, I think, the kind of thing they're talking about. So in other words, uh, supermarkets are destinations and they have a social, you're doing some socializing uh, there. Right, right. The grocerant, sir. That's that's the phrase you're going to have to get comfortable with. No, I, I like the phrase you just used, the vegetable butcher. I think that's a great, I haven't heard that before. So what, what about the other trend, which is diversity of ingredients? So obviously I'm interested in that. But uh, gochujang, you know, is now 
uh, mm-hmm. available, mm-hmm. or you see gochujang potato chips, or you have harissa, or you have different spices. In different communities also, Goya foods might be more popular than in other neighborhoods. How do grocery stores deal with the complexity and diversity of ingredients? Because it's, it's obviously very different than 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. So big grocery store chains, Kroger, Safeway, Publix, are realizing they've got to customize their stores. So they're building smaller stores, and they're customizing them to neighborhoods. So they're seeing competition from big Asian grocery store chains and, you know, H Mart and things that are moving in. So they are trying to put stores in neighborhoods that uh, have the food that people in that neighborhood want to cook because the grocery industry realizes that they are losing to these new smaller you know, more uh, customized stores and to online shopping because you can pretty much in two days get your gujong sent to you over, you know, whatever rice you happen to need sent to you uh, online. It's fairly easy to walk into a major grocery store chain and find the ingredients to cook with a more global palate. You you use the word disruptive. That is, the supermarket is one of the last industries, you know, there was the hardware store, right? (laughs) With Home Depot, there was the stationery store, that you know, et cetera, Staples. Cab drivers and Uber. Yeah, well, yeah. Uber is the ultimate disruption. Is there going to be, in your opinion, in the next 10 or 15 years, a disruption on the level of an Uber? Or is this going to be, you think, of sort of a gradual change with lots of different changes in different markets? I think it's going to be gradual. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more customization in grocery stores. These, you know, small... Uh, interesting options, the 24-hour self-check grocery store, you know, the the model that combines a food bank and a grocery store in a, in a poor community. All these little things are going to be popping up. There's no-waste stores that are really big right now where you bring in your own containers, you know, or they sell you containers there. Then nothing is packaged. You just buy everything sort of bulk, and it is kind of a throwback to the co-op days. Like, there are going to be lots of little alternatives. This is a you know, we're a culture of like, we like 100,000 choices, right. you know, and I think that's what's going to happen in small grocery stores. But I think that anchor grocery store is not going to go away. Well, there's an analogy here, which is sort of interesting, which is the drugstore, right? Uh, and the drugstores are pretty much a horrific shopping experience, right? They have one floor that's all foods and snacks and other stuff. And then they have the other floor that's more medications. But that's not a, no one's really figured out how to do the right kind of drugstore, right? No, not not like the old drugstores right. that we we loved. And it's interesting. So that's the other problem that grocery stores are facing. Food is being sold everywhere, like not just snacks, but also things you can pick up as uh, meal replacements or you can get, you know, milk and hummus and uh, enough stuff to go home and piece together some kind of dinner. So you can buy food at... Um, you know, you could buy food at the car wash. Right. You could buy food at the drugstore. Well, we should end on a positive note. I, I mean, if you look at bookstores, right, which had the big box stores come in, the big box stores are failing or have moved out. The, the bookstores are thriving in communities where they're part of the community, right? They have lots of signings. Right. They have events. They have a, a more diverse product line. So they become part of the town or the village or the city. And, and maybe that's where supermarkets are headed. I think that's true. I think people like to pick out their own grapes. They want to be part of the community. And, you know, it's not so fun to order everything online. (laughs) You heard it here first (laughs) from Kim Severson. (laughs) That internet will never catch on. It's not fun to order online. Kim Severson, uh, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Milk Street. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. I always love talking with you.
That was Kim Severson, national food correspondent at The New York Times. Her article's called The Freshest Ideas Are in Small Grocery Stores. Milstia Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to answer your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Katie from Ohio. Hi, Katie from Ohio. How can we help you today? Thanks. So I've been working on going through some of my grandmother's old recipes. And she's got some cookie recipes that are quite old, like from my great-great-grandmother's time. And they call for sweet or sour milk. And I was just wondering what that would mean. Tell me uh, what kind of cookie. So one of the ones I'm looking at, it says it's for sugar cookies. Mm -hmm. And all the other ingredients are very normal, like flour, baking powder, nutmeg, that kind of thing. But then the last ingredient, it says a half a cup of sweet or sour milk. I think I know what sour milk is, but what would sweet milk be? Sweet milk is just regular milk. Plain old regular milk. And I think the reason they called it sweet is in contrast to the sour milk. Okay. And the sour milk would just be milk that's like gone off a bit, or would it be buttermilk? Well, that's a good question. I think sour milk was milk that's fermented, and you'd leave it by a stove or something and heat it. Buttermilk is buttermilk. Because you see sour milk pancakes, for example. You see a lot of recipes in the old books for sour milk things. But buttermilk is a very specific thing, which is obviously what's left over once you make butter. It's odd that you could use either because a sour or fermented milk or would, even buttermilk would behave differently. Would behave differently because you use a different kind of leavener, right? Because baking powder has an acid and a leavener. So you just use baking soda with a soured or buttermilk, right? Right. So that seems odd that they would say either. The recipe, what kind of leavener does it use? Yes, it's got baking powder and baking soda in it. So they're covering all their bases there. Yeah. Yeah. Also with cookies, you're not worried about leavening as much as you would be with a cake of some kind. So it makes less difference probably. Right. But sour milk is a ingredient you see all the time in the late 19th century. All right. Thank you so much. Katie, thank you. Yeah. Take care. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marcia from Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Marcia. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Good, good. Uh, how can we help you? Well, I listen to your show often, and there was a question previously that people asked about what to use in making soup, be it chicken bones, mm-hmm. beef bones. And I was always taught to use goat bones. Where'd you grow up, first of all? <laughs> I grew up in Columbus, but um, I have a lot of African friends. I was going to say, you must be in a neighborhood where you can access that, because I'd say that would be the number one problem. Most people, you know, don't have access to goat bones. I'm going to do what Sarah would do, which is to ask you, (laughs) instead of talking. Oh, good. I'm going to ask you. I've taught you a few things, huh? (laughs) Yeah, one thing. You behave. (laughs) That's never going to happen. (laughs) Sarah's tough. Um, So... You've made stock with it, and you've compared it to chicken or something else. Uh, it has a lot more flavor, I would assume. Is that right? So much more flavor. Right. And how and, would you describe um, that flavor? It's richer. It has a, it's a deeper flavor. Hmm. I wouldn't necessarily compare it to beef because I think it's even richer than beef bones. There's a smoothness to it, huh. and especially if you're making stock to make soup for someone who's been um, ill or in the hospital or something, 
I've always heard that there's healing properties within goat bones. <laughs> now, is this like shank cuts or what bones you're using? Yes, mostly the shank and... Um, I often boil it with just ginger and garlic hmm. and celery and cilantro and just boil the heck out of it. And you get this really dark, rich broth that Sounds is delicious. amazing. Do you brown them first or you just throw it in a pot? You don't even have to brown them first. That's the great point. <laughs> now, where, what market do you get them at? I just go to several different African markets. When Whole Foods first came to Ohio, they used to sell goat meat. Really? Yes, they did. And they stopped selling it. Because we have a lot of farmers around, you know, there are farmers that will sell to some of the smaller family markets. um, And so that's where I typically go to get it. Good for you. That's (laughs) I've never done that. I've eaten goat. I like goat very much, but I certainly have never made goat stock. I think you both should make it and then call me and tell me what you think. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do do a reverse follow-up. I know, really, a reverse follow-up. All right, Marsha, you're right. Marsha, you're ahead of us. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you guys keep doing what you do because I absolutely love listening to you, and I learn something every time. Yeah, well, so do we. <laughs> so do we. So. <laughs> okay. Go stock. Okay, that's a new one. Marsha, uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Go stock. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chrissy from Sturbridge. Hi, how are you? How can we help you? I'm good. My question is about sesame seeds. My friend recently had her baby, and then when she went to the doctor, she found she was allergic to sesame seeds now all of a sudden. When we love making hummus together, we also like cooking a lot of Asian dishes with sesame oil. So we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now to replace the sesame component in, in hummus and also for the sesame oil? Is she allergic to nuts or just sesame? To the actual sesame seed. I so think. almonds, you know, an almond butter would be okay, for example? An almond butter, I think, would be okay. The hummus, I think, was a little bit easier of a question. We also heard that if you use ice cubes, potentially, that could help with the smoothness. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's also a flavor issue, though, I think, a little bit. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, like a lot. Yeah. You know, um, I agree. I think almond butter would be great. Or some other nut butter. Yeah. Right? As for the component in Asian cooking, you could try toasted pumpkin seed oil. Oh, it's, okay. It's a wonderful ingredient, and it's dark, and it's just yummy, and I think that okay. would work. It's a good idea. It's very strong, okay. though. So, you know, be, like toasted sesame seed oil, be careful with it because it can take over. Okay. Well, thank you. That's perfect. I will try that. Thank you for calling, Chrissy. Okay. Thanks, Take Chrissy. Care. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye now. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Rob. Hi, Rob. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Pinellas Park, Florida, in the Tampa Bay region. Okay, and tell us uh, what you're calling about. Well, I called last month and was invited to call back to talk about the cake mix issue that I'm having. Oh, you're a cake mix guy. Okay. (laughs) He's he's the box mix guy. He's the box mix guy, and he added whipped cream. Just remind us about the question one more time, because I can't remember. Well, the problem I was having at home is that when I added in an additional half cup of cream whipped, that I would get a little bit of a fall on right. the box cake mix with all the other ingredients. Oh, as it wasn't. I'm, I'm making the butter recipe 
mix where you add a stick of butter to the cake. And we said you have too much fat in it, right? Yes. And you were right. (laughs) So I found it a little ironic that I was having to do a sort of a lab experiment when I started out as a guy that was making a box cake. (laughs) Right. Good point. Good point. (laughs) But I did make it four more times with some different quantities just to see, was that really the problem? And I'm convinced that it was. So you tested reducing the amount of butter in the basic mix? Is that what the That's test right. was? So the, the least I used was half of the butter, right. and then I kept the cream consistent. I was still using a half a cup of cream. And which whip. was the best for as far as what you consider to be the best? You know what? I thought the one with half of the butter was the best. And then right. the second best to me was the one with just a little more butter. I kept the cream in all of them, so I just wanted to compare, was the problem the amount of fat, as you had suggested? And it was. So let's just put it clearly. Okay. We were right. Well, yeah. You okay. Are. But and the well, reason we just, we, we just need to take a moment, Sarah. I know it's rare, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this doesn't happen yeah, every day. Yeah, be. Okay. <laughs> but Rob, I have to ask you a question. The reason so you added half the amount of butter called for in the recipe plus you put in a half a cup of cream that was not called for in the recipe. And it was whipped and folded in. Right. So I took the half a cup of cream, then whipped it, right. and then added that in. That That's was right. his premise. Use the box cake mix. I know. And I remember half, that. Yeah. Let me ask the obvious question. When you made the box mix, the butter mix cake, without adding cream, just did it according to directions. Directions. How was that? So I haven't made it like that recently, but I've made it plenty of times right. in the past. And, and I always thought it was a little dry. I like a very... Moist. Moist, but not extraordinarily dense cake, something more akin to a pound cake, I suppose. You're adding a half a cup of whipped cream and reducing the fat. You ended up with a better recipe than just following the directions on the box. I did. Okay. I did. Hey, I well, really, thank you. I really hey, like the one with half or a little bit more Now you've than got half uh, the, the first recipe in your new cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, you know what? You obviously uh, have a talent for this because you did the test. Was yeah. it fun? Oh, yeah, I had a good time. Made a big mess, but it, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, well, listen, Rob, Rob we so appreciate all your hard yeah. work and also for reporting back. That's yeah. We like oh, that. thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, thanks yeah. very much. Take okay. care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Georgia Friedman, author of Cooking South of the Clouds, Recipes and Stories from China's Yunnan Province. After the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with food and travel writer Georgia Friedman. Her new book, Cooking South of the Clouds, gives us a rare glimpse into the foods and flavors of China's Yunnan province. Georgia, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, it's a real pleasure to speak to you because we're going to talk about an area of China I know absolutely nothing about, and you know a great deal about it, Yunnan. Uh, where is it, and how did you end up living there? So Yunnan is in the southwestern corner of China. It's sort of below the edge of the Tibetan Plateau and next to Myanmar and uh, 
Laos and Vietnam. Um, and it also borders Sichuan and some other areas of China that people probably aren't as familiar with, but you get a little bit of the Sichuan flavor, which is why I mention it. And I ended up there because I was studying Chinese in Beijing in college, and the weather in Yunnan is supposed to be beautiful, and it was very hot in Beijing. And a friend and I took a week and went there, and I just fell head over heels in love with the place and decided that someday I was moving there. And it took a decade to get back, but uh, my husband and I, back in 2011, picked up our lives and our cats and <laughs> as many things as we thought we would need and uh, moved to Kunming, which is the capital, and lived there for a couple of years. It's referred to, or you refer to it as China's Wild West. So could you explain that and also describe very quickly the different regions because they're all very different in terms of food and everything else? Yeah, so this is an area of China that wasn't actually part of imperial China for a very long time. It took until um, Kublai Khan's army came through to actually bring Yunnan into the rest of the country. So it was self-governing for a long time. The people who lived in Yunnan historically were not the Han majority of the rest of China. They were minority groups, dozens and hundreds of them really, that had been pushed up into the mountains through war and displacement over the course of centuries. And because it's an extremely mountainous area, there are these huge mountain ranges that are carved by these very big rivers that become the Mekong River and different large rivers that come down in through the rest of Asia. It's very mountainous, and so there wasn't a lot of connection to the rest of China. There were a lot of trade routes that went through over the course of time, but different groups were sort of self-governing in many areas, all within what is now considered Yunnan. And a lot of what we consider sort of modern conveniences didn't make it out to Yunnan. It wasn't as economically developed until the last maybe 30 years or so. There were still a lot of dirt roads and the electricity was a bit spotty. And so it's an area that people haven't really traveled to as much. It hasn't had as much economic growth as other parts of China. And as a result, it doesn't feel quite like the rest of the country. There's still a real sense, especially right now, that people feel like anything is possible. So the four areas, northeast, southwest, uh, maybe you could just go through each area very, very quickly. Just give me an example of a recipe you might find in each area. Sure. Um, so, yes, the north, you're up on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau, and it gets cold. And there's certainly more vegetables and more vegetation than in other parts of Tibet. Um, they were considered to have a very healthy diet as far as Tibetan food went. But you get a lot of cold weather dishes like deep fried ribs with a um, chili bean sauce on them on top of deep fried mint, which is delicious, mm. but only something you really want to eat when it's really cold out. <laughs> and a lot of potato dishes, a lot of big potato pancakes like the size of a plate, like a massive latka, um, with chilies on top. And then if you go all the way down south, um, you're on the edge of Laos, and you got a lot of dishes that feel a lot like you would something you would eat in northern Laos. There's fried river weed from the Mekong, which is something that you get in Laos, and a lot of dishes that are just grilled on an open fire, like fish that's been stuffed with fresh herbs and fresh chilies, lots and lots mm. of fresh chilies down in the south. If you are out in the West by the border with Myanmar, you really taste a lot of the foods that are influenced by Myanmar. That border wasn't settled until the 60s. So there's a lot of cross-cultural trade and you know groups are on either side of the border that were historically um, one group. And the minorities there are the same as the minorities you find in Myanmar. So 
There are a lot of dishes that have a lot of very bright herbs in them, a lot of chilies also, and a lot of sour pickled bamboo, which has this sort of funky flavor that's really nice paired with meats or stewed with other vegetables. And then as you head east, you get dishes that are much more sort of traditionally Chinese, you know, things that have oyster sauce in them, depending on which part of the province they're bordering. And then up near Sichuan, of course, you get a lot of Sichuan peppercorns. There are pickles in all the regions, lots of pickles everywhere of different types. Um, and central Yunnan's foods have a lot of pickles, especially, and a lot of dried chilies. I and think sort of are blend all the different styles. In Cooking South of the Clouds, you have the world's best uh, recipe directive, quote, if you have access to yak meat, cut back on the soy sauce. <laughs> I just thought I've, I've never written that phrase ever <laughs> in a recipe. <laughs> it's got me going. Um, so th- let's talk about a few of the recipes I found interesting. Um, some of them are really simple, which I like. Steam pot chicken, chicken, goji berries, ginger, and salt. Uh, pea mm-hmm. green soup with lard, salt, pea greens, and water. Um, maybe you could talk about those too. I, I just love the simplicity of those recipes. Yeah, a lot of Yunnan's food is actually very simple because it's farming food, it's peasant food, it's people out in the countryside foraging for greens. Mushrooms are very popular in Yunnan and dozens and dozens of varieties grow. And so people are just cooking what they have available in you know very simple ways. The steam pot chicken recipe is a particularly popular and famous recipe. It's one that Julia Child apparently ate when she was living in Kunming during World War II. And it's made in a very beautiful steam pot, which is a sort of a red clay pot that has like an upside down funnel in the middle. And the steam comes up from the pot and helps keep everything moist as it cooks. And the pea green soup with just four or five ingredients, that sounded interesting. Yeah, that's something that a friend of mine made when pea greens were in season. You trim off the tougher bottom areas of the greens, which is very common in Chinese cooking. You'll buy a bunch of greens and then only use the tenderest parts. And so you trim those off, and she just quickly boiled it, and she had some homemade, home-rendered lard from her parents' farm, and she just plopped a little spoonful Mm. in. When I do it at home, I save up baking grease and then just put a little spoonful in, and it's... The sweetness of the pea greens and a little bit of the smokiness and fattiness and water and you're set. Um, And it's a really nice contrast to anything that you're eating that has a little oil in it, a stir-fried dish or something. Uh, What's a walking marriage? Ah, (laughs) so um, (laughs) up in northern Yunnan, um, near the Tibetan areas are the Moso, which are a minority group that have fascinated people in China and outside of China for a long time. Um, Technically, they're part of the Nashi minority, but they historically have been very separate and they have separate dialect. But the Moso are a matrilineal society, and they have traditionally had forms of marriage that didn't look like Chinese forms of marriage. But essentially, people in the areas where the Mosa are living are allowed to date (laughs) and have long-term relationships that are not necessarily bound by marriage, kind of like we do now. So so in other words, you're not not married. You're just in a relationship? Yeah, essentially. And people had children in those relationships, and some people got married and some people did not. And usually people stayed in their mother's homes— which meant that uncles took care of their sisters' children and the fathers. The fathers played a very important role also, but economically, uncles were very important and played a big role. 
the pineapple rice, I think it has a little banana in it too. Could you describe uh-huh. that to me? I, I've not seen that before. Sure. It was something that I first had down um, in southern Yunnan, which is not very far from northern Thailand. And I always thought of pineapple rice as something that you find in Thai restaurants, and I wasn't entirely sure how authentic it was. But people eat pineapple rice all the time in southern Yunnan, and it's basically just pineapple and um, in some cases banana and a little bit of sugar and sticky rice. And uh, you cook the sticky rice. And then you mix all the ingredients up together and stuff it back in the pineapple and steam the whole thing together. Hmm. If you're out near the border with Myanmar, farther up, you will also find it with some other ingredients added, um, and especially sweetened condensed milk, which you Hmm. can tell is a remnant of the British being in Myanmar. This is a dumb question, but I'll ask anyway. Is there one dish that you've had there that just absolutely sold you on Yunnan or or is sort of typical of Yunnan or is so different that you never could have it anywhere else? Um, Well, so Yunnan's most famous dish is crossing the bridge rice noodles. And people have started to make it here in the U.S. And it's the dish that I think first caught my imagination and got me to move back to Yunnan. The version of it that you find in Yunnan, in the city of Mengzi, where it's originally from, is just so phenomenally good and much better than the versions that you get in the U.S., unfortunately. It takes hours and hours and days and days to get a broth as flavorful as the broth that they are making. So what, describe the rest of the dish. Obviously, there are noodles in it, but what else is it? Yes. Um, so it comes to the table in parts, actually. You get a massive bowl of broth. And you get lots of, well, depending on how, how you order it, in some places you get lots of little dishes full of the ingredients. So there will be some quail eggs and some raw meats and some fish and uh, some very thinly sliced ham and some vegetables and some mushrooms and some tofu skin. And uh, next to that, a bowl of rice noodles. And the broth comes so steaming hot to the table that you start adding the ingredients in, starting with the things like the raw meats and the egg, and you stir as you add them, and they cook in the heat of the broth. And by the end, you have this really fragrant soup with, you know, a dozen, two dozen ingredients in it Hmm. that really tastes like nothing else. You know, I I was briefly in Thailand, and I I was struck by the way the people greet you and the solemnity of that— and sort of the respect, it, w- it was quite different than any other place I've been. So in Yunnan, maybe it's different in each region. I mean, just to, how do you interact with people? Like, for example, would someone invite you over for dinner or, or whatever meal? Is that never done? How do you greet someone in Yunnan? What, what, what are sort of the social niceties of, of being there? Sure, yeah. Um, well, China often feels very different from other from Southeast Asia, where, you know, everybody says, oh, people are so warm in Southeast Asia. And it's true. You really get that feeling traveling there. And in China, people are a bit more down to business. You sort of remember the history. There's been some hardship within recent memory. And you can sort of see that in the collective psyche. But that doesn't, it's like being in New York. Just because New Yorkers don't seem friendly doesn't mean they're not incredibly helpful and friendly. It's just what you see on the face of it. So we made a lot of local friends while we were there. People absolutely invite us over to dinner when they find, especially when they find out that I'm interested in the food. And a part of our research was just that kind of making friends, you know, finding ourselves in a small restaurant somewhere on the roadside and just asking if we could pop into the kitchen to watch what they were cooking. And then you end up chatting and you end up learning about their family. And people are very friendly in that way. 
people were very excited that people out from outside of China were interested in learning about Yunnan's foods because people in Yunnan are very proud of their food. And so they were thrilled that I liked the food as well and that I thought that other Americans were going to enjoy the food. Even cab drivers, I'd pop in and one of the first things they'd ask would be, do you like the food here? And as soon as I said I enjoyed the food, I'd get a bunch of recommendations of places to go and had I eaten this particular dish and had I tried the ham from this particular place. So talking about food is a really great way of opening up the conversation. Georgia, it's, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That was Georgia Friedman, author of Cooking South of the Clouds, Recipes and Stories from China's Yunnan Province. Yunnan Province likes to claim that it's the source of inspiration for James Hilton's 1933 classic novel, Lost Horizon, based on the myth of Shangri-La. But the truth is a little more complicated. In Tibetan Buddhist tradition, Shambhala is a mythical kingdom which was sought by both Eastern and Western explorers. And both Jewish and Aramaic sources talk about other mythical cities where death was unknown. But the most likely direct source of inspiration for Shangri-La was two French priests who traveled between Beijing and Lhasa in the 1840s. A popular English translation appeared in 1928, just at the time that Hilton would have been writing his novel Lost Horizon. But I really do prefer the Shambhala myth, especially the part that says, quote, when the world is mired in war and greed, a king will emerge from Shambhala to conquer the forces of darkness. That sounds like an excellent screenplay for Lost Horizon 2. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, miso gochujang pulled pork. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? You know, I love surprises, at least most of the time. And one of them happened recently. Our editorial director, Jason, was in Australia, and he was totally surprised by what he found there. It wasn't shrimp on the barbie. It was amazing food. But it was really food that was a mashup of Asian, Indonesian, and Australian. And it was incredibly tasty and incredibly interesting. One of the things he brought back was a pulled pork recipe, which sounds very American. But it had two ingredients in it, miso, white miso, and gochujang, which is a Korean spicy sauce. And it was incredibly simple to make and had great flavor. So how do we do it here? Chris, it's a very simple dish. In a Dutch oven, we braise pork shoulder. We cut it into two-inch pieces, so it'll cook a little quicker and more evenly. And then that braising liquid is this incredible flavor base with gochujang for spiciness, a little bit of white miso for sweetness, and then we also have ginger and hoisin and cilantro stems. So this is a typical braise, two or three hours, covered Dutch oven, we're done, and then what? That's right. Although to end and really finish off the dish, we want to add a little bit of extra gochujang at the end. And of course, we reduce that cooking liquid so that it makes a really delicious sauce. Now you have this great braised pork. How do you serve it? Well, I think the traditional American way on a soft roll is a great way to go, Chris. I just need to say that, you know, we love all the recipes here. I think this is our favorite recipe in the last six months. It's so easy to make. You have to find a couple ingredients, but it's just absolutely terrific. Soft roll, simple recipe, a mashup influence from Australia. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for miso gochujang pulled pork at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman introduces me to the world of shower beers. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. 
a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's tip to change the way you cook. You know, I love American food, but American chicken soup is, well, without doubt, the least appealing in the world. You know, other countries from Mexico to Somalia improve on this concept with herbs, crunchy toppings, hot sauces, and other ingredients. So here are a few tips for improving on this classic recipe. 
First, we love to build the broth from water. With enough herbs, aromatics, and chicken, you'll end up with a broth that has infinitely more flavor than any store-bought stock. Also, be sure to use bone and skin on chicken when cooking. This is essential for contributing flavor. We also recommend cutting off the top quarter of a head of garlic and then poaching it in the broth. When the chicken is cooked, squeeze out the garlic using tongs and whisk it into the broth to add flavor. By the way, please season your broth liberally with whole spices and also herb stems. Once the soup is cooked, add finishing touches, which might include lemon juice, freshly grated ginger, handfuls of chopped herbs, sliced radish or cabbage, or a dash of hot sauce, as they do in Somalia. For more cooking tips and ideas, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's our regular contributor, Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How have you been? Uh, I've been well, but I, I think this segment's about how you've been. Uh, okay. Well, I've, I've been thinking about you lately. I was excited to, to chat because I, I've been thinking a lot about a, a food-related subject that I'll bet is near and dear to your heart. Just knowing you as I do, I, <laughs> I feel just, like... <laughs> I'm nervous here. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I feel like you're the kind of guy that enjoys a good shower beer. Am I right? A good shower beer? A shower beer. You're up, you're in Vermont, you're you're shoveling piles of mud places, you're doing farm kind of stuff, you're getting dirty, and you come inside to clean off, and you enjoy a nice shower beer. Am I right? <laughs> that would be. <laughs> that That's not in my universe of things I've yeah. ever thought about, much less enjoy. Well, it's about time you start, Chris, because I'm here to tell you about the deliciousness of a good shower beer. Okay. Beer tastes great in the shower. Okay, this is a thing. People know about it, and I want you to try it. Okay, so let's get some facts here. Does it matter what kind of beer? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. I, generally speaking, outside of the shower, like to pair my beer with weather. The difficulty with pairing the right kind of beer with the shower is, do you want it based on the temperature of the shower or the temperature of the outdoors? You mean, okay, so hold on a second. The only two criteria by which you're going to choose your beer is the temperature of the shower or the temperature of the climate outside? I I, I think beer is very weather dependent. The climate, the atmosphere of like, you know, if I'm going to be inside or outside and what is the weather outside, what is the mood? Like the beers that I drink in the summer versus the winter are very different. Is there, a, is there another factor in beer? <laughs> yeah, a few. I mean, you, 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 you could have, wait a minute here. I mean, you, you could have like a Guinness, which the Irish drink all year round, right? Yeah. No, I will say that Guinness, I think, is probably the one beer that can be a year-round beer. Or really like a, a, any good stout. Um, that's the kind of beer that I think works equally well in cold and hot weather. But that's kind of the exception that proves the rule. Oh. I think that like, uh, you know, like, like a, a nice dark ale or maybe something that's a little bit more bitter, that's really, to me, that's cold weather. Yeah. If I'm outside in the cold and if I come in and take a hot shower, a nice strong beer to go with that shower is really delightful. Whereas if it's like I've been outside in the sun and I got hot running around in the in the warm weather and I come in for a cool shower, I want a light beer, I want a lager, maybe I wanted to have a squeeze of lime in there. So, okay, so I, I turn the shower on, I'm standing right. there naked and I have a can of beer. Do I pop the beer when I'm under the water? Do I drink the beer before I soap up? I mean, what? how does this work? 
Right. No, when you open the beer is up to you, but you're absolutely right. There are some logistics to take yeah. into account here. Uh, you, you need a good shelf or a rail, a place where you can put the beer down from time to time, and it needs to right. be out of the flow of the water. Right. You, you want to keep your beer out of what we call the soap zone. You know, you want the first sip in the shower. It, a shower is a very invigorating and soothing experience, and so why not an, add to that beer? And, and I'm telling you, the two go well. They go better than you ever could have dreamed. Okay. Now, is do you definitely want a can of beer and not a bottle of beer for this? I mean, I, I'm partial to cans in general, and yeah. also that way, like if if it does get knocked over, you don't have a major problem. Okay. Now, here's the real question: yeah. Do you have to finish yeah. the beer and the shower at the same time? That's a great question, Chris. You it see, is. this you know, I, I knew that you were going to understand this concept intuitively, <laughs> even if you hadn't actually experienced it. Um, I don't think so. I think that carrying the beer with you out of the shower is, is is a nice experience. You know, it creates a bridge to the next part of your day. But you could. You know, it depends on how quick you shower and how quick you drink. I no, I think you need cold beer, you need a can, hot shower, and you need to finish the shower and the beer at the same time. I think that's the way to do it. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm I'm I love that you have such strong opinions about something you've never done before, <laughs> but that's <laughs> those are the things I have the strongest opinions about. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Why do you like the idea of finishing them at the same time? I can just see tipping the can up, taking that last gulp, the, turn the shower off, the beer's done, the shower's done, and you're moving on. Okay. I can okay. see that. I mean, you're, you you strike me as a very organized individual, yeah. so I can see you like scheduling it in your calendar, like beer and shower end at the same time. Now, now there's one other thing I want to tell you about, Chris, because shower beers have kind of a long and proud history. But I'm hearing from friends uh, that increasingly people are broadening this approach to the culinary arts. And I have heard great things about the morning coffee taken in the shower. No, I don't. No, no. I'm sorry. I, the, the beer, the, a shower is refreshing. A beer is, is, a, uh, is a watershed moment, right, before the beer and after the beer. The, the coffee, I, I don't know. I, that's, that's kind of a long, slow wake up, sip the coffee over 10 or 15 minutes thing. It's not a three-minute shower. I guess it depends on your mornings. But, I mean, (laughs) a morning shower has a different purpose and plays a different role in your day than an afternoon shower, right? Just as coffee and beer play different roles. And so the morning shower is like wake up and get invigorated, get prepared to face the day. Yeah. A little coffee helps with that. Yeah, that, that's true. It, it, it the the problem with your coffee cup is you're going to get a lot more soap in your coffee than you are in, a, in the top of a beer can, though. Look, it's 2.0. I will grant you. Like, graduate from the beer, move on to the coffee. But but I think it's I, I've tried it and it is really nice. Like, you really feel like you can just absolutely crush the day ahead of you when you shower in the morning while drinking coffee. Okay, I have a last question. Is, is this about pairing beverages with showers? Or is this really about drinking things while you're naked? <laughs> Look, wh- whichever part of the experience <laughs> gets you asking. most excited, Chris, <laughs> I'm not judging. I, this is a <laughs> judgment-free zone. I'm just looking for heightened experiences, heightened pleasure. No, the shower beer, I will try that. I, I, that that okay. has some, the shower coffee does not interest me. But the shower beer, the sound of popping the can that first rush of cold beer, the rush of the hot water. I get it. I, I think there's something admirable about the concept. Okay. I have experimented now with something that I've heard about, one of the latest trends in the universe, 
the ice cream sandwich in the shower. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Dan, you know, here's the thing about you. You start out on solid footing, and then you just keep going, man. And then, <laughs> Aren't you a big Jerry Garcia fan? Chris, think of me like Jerry. You know, you start off, you got to learn the basic chords, shower beer. Pretty soon it's chip witch and a hot no. shower. The ice cream gets a little bit melty. The chips are crunchy. Give it a shot. Jerry Garcia never went to chip witch. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, don't cast aspersions at the man. Dan Pashman, uh, beer in the shower, yes. Coffee in the shower, maybe. Chip witch in the shower, no thank you. You're missing out. <laughs> That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Kim Severson spoke earlier about the future shape of supermarkets, and it did occur to me that supermarkets really haven't changed much in the last half century. You know, hardware and stationery stores have been modernized, as have drugstores. But supermarkets just offer, well, more stuff than they used to without much sense of place. A supermarket in Milwaukee isn't much different than one down in Orlando. So hopefully the supermarket of the future will be entertaining or social or maybe allow customers to participate in some way. Like food co-ops, one might become a member or have some say over the food that is offered. You know, food is community. Why are supermarkets just about shopping? That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every episode, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.